Father in heaven, we come before thee for the second time this day. We thank you for the word this morning and we pray for your blessing this afternoon. Though only two or three may be gathered in your name, your word says you will be with us in our midst. We thank you for that promise. Be with those that are bedridden, that are lonely, that are sick, that are suffering, as we heard in the prayer this morning, and bless them in a special way. Help us to visit them if we can certainly have services that are virtual, we can certainly visit them through phone calls. And we pray that every one of us may attempt to comfort them, to encourage them in their loneliness and isolation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For this uh, afternoon text, I feel led to read from the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. Some of you may have guessed from the song that I chose that we're going to be talking about Elijah the prophet. So 1 Kings chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, there an angel came and touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. He looked and behold, there was a cake baking on coals and a cruise of water at his head. <clears throat> and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went into strength of the men <clears throat> forty days, forty nights, unto horror the Mount of God. And he came thither unto the cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand up upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and great and strong and wind rent the mountains, and breaking pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was 
flooding the, the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken my covenant, thrown me on thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return unto thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou come, comest, anoint Hazael to be king of, over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, thou shalt anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mekolah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And he that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. So he departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and with his twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And he arose and went after Elijah, and ministered. We have been studying in the uh, Old Testament on Wednesday nights. Many of the themes have come from the Old Testament. We covered Elijah as well um, in one of our first studies. And uh, recently we've looked at the other kings of Israel and with Josiah, which started with him. But we also viewed, uh, uh, actually, a mistake, he was the king of Judah, not of Israel. Judah is a part of the main country, Israel, the southern kingdom. And we talked about the, the good and the bad kings. And here we see um, Elijah in his day. This is in the first book of Kings now. And the experiences he had in uh, upholding the word of God and the law of God. Elijah is looked upon as a very rugged prophet, much like John the Baptist, who followed in his, if you will, pattern. Um, even it was mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament as they were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Peter, James, and John were up in that glorious uh, site where they saw Jude, uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus with their light, with their faces just shone, lit up. 
It was a wonderful experience they had, a mountaintop experience. But on the way down, they asked, how can the prophets say that Elijah first must come? And Jesus said, indeed, Elijah must first come and establish all things. But if you receive it, Elijah has already come. And he was, and they have done whatever they wanted with him. He was referring to John the Baptist. He came in the spirit of Elijah, as was prophesied in the book of Malachi. And we talked about that yesterday at the brothers' meeting, how in that in the last days that, that Elijah will come and he will turn the children to the fathers and fathers to the children. Um, and he will do that by this if you will, reformation of the nation of Israel that had gone into idolatry, gone into captivity, Assyria to Israel, uh, Israel to Assyria and Judah to, to Babylon. And then when they had returned in their colonies back to Jerusalem, in the last 400 years there was no sign of any prophet, there was no voice. And the last voice in the Old Testament was that of the prophecy of Malachi which means messenger. He was the messenger of God, just like John the Baptist was the messenger that would prepare the way of the Lord. So Elijah played a big role. And apart from the, 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 the dramatic events on Mount Carmel, Elijah had a very tender chapter, if we can say it, literally, in the preceding chapter, where um, he meets this widow of Zarephtha. Uh, the New Testament, the Greek says Zarephtha, but Jesus mentioned and alluded to that. But he, he meets this widow in Zarephtha, which is between Sidon and Tyre on the, on the west coast, if you will, um, of Israel, uh, which is a Phoenician area between Sidon and Tyre. It was a non-Jewish area, mainly Gentiles, and um, God instructed him through the angels to go to this widow and she will feed you. She will feed you. You know, Israel went through a famine um, for three years. Um, the Bible talks about three and a half as well, but there's maybe some other interlude there. But for, for three years they had a famine with nothing and, and the animals were dying and the people were starving. Um, and we think we have a pandemic now which is really debilitating and limiting us in what we can do. Well, uh, as, as the, the story with, with the account with Elijah will show us, um, we haven't gone through anything yet as, as much as what many in the past have gone through. I was, I was thinking about that, what they must have gone through, and I came to my memory of the famine. Some of you may remember reading about it, maybe some people um, recounted it, how in the Ukraine in 1930, 32, between those two years I believe it was, that there was a huge famine, and it was probably Many people believe it was a man-initiated, if you will, uh, what the Ukrainians say, Holodomor, which means um, killing by hunger or death by hunger. 
up to initial estimates where 12 million people died in the Ukraine. A further re re refining of that by the United Nations and other organizations brought it down to about 7 million, regardless between 7 and 12 million. People died of hunger. There was no food. And how dire that situation was. Uh, you know, lying in the streets, just falling down dead because of the great, uh, if you were pestilence or famine that came around to them that, that time. We may, you know, when we read through the, 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 the Bible and, and it's very, um, in some places, cursory, and in some places it travels fast. You know, like in this chapter alone that we read, uh, Elijah traveled from the very north of Israel, Mount Carmel, from the lush Mount Carmel, that area, down to the Mount Horeb, which was nothing but rock. In one chapter, he's traveled 150, 200 kilometers. You know, that's, the Bible travels very fast sometimes. And we don't really pay attention to the details or think about what it could have been like. And sometimes it's like that with us today. We hear about it, and to us, it's in, in the back of our minds because it's not happening in my backyard. Now that COVID has happened, it's in my front yard, right? Not my backyard. It's debilitating, it's incapacitating, it's crippling the economy, it's limiting our fellowship, and we feel it. We feel it. But we don't think about others. When they go through this, do we have any compassion towards them? You know that there's a famine now in Yemen where they say up to 10 or whatever million people could die. This is just as bad, if you will, as the Ukraine was. And yet, what is the world doing about it? If, if the decisions are made are political, then people suffer. And that's not what God wants for our, for the planet He created, for the earth He created. I just want to bring this to our, to the forefront of our minds to see what it was like in the Old Testament times, and how the people of God suffered. But not only the people of God suffered, but everyone suffered, as we saw in this uh, chapter here. Elijah comes to Sarepta. And he comes to a woman who had an only son. And she was about to die. When the prophet Elijah asked her to please make me some, some food, some, some cake and so forth and, and some water for him to drink out of. She said, this is all I have. I just have this much uh, meal and this much water and we're going to, my son and I are going to consume this, and then we're going to die. But Elijah tests her, and he must have given her some idea that he was some kind of a prophet. And she takes, this is chapter 17, and I'm also traveling fast, and she does what he says. What he says. She goes and makes him of the last piece of uh, handful or so of meal and some oil, 
she makes a cake and gives it to him. And he promises her that, you know, meal and oil will not fail from your house, from this cruise and from this pot, whatever, as long as you live. And Jesus commanded what this widow did in an indirect way. If I can uh, read from the book of Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went home to his hometown, Nazareth. Remember? He was, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Way up there, up north. Not far from Capernaum and Bethsaida, where the other disciples were. Capernaum became his second home, actually. Right? He, he was raised there, but when he started ministering, Capernaum became Christ's really second place where, where he called home. And he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, and he opened that, that very monumental uh, chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And he's in the synagogue, he speaks and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he sat down, and he waits for a reaction. What was the reaction? And the eyes of all of them were in the synagogue were fastened on him. What's he going to say next? Who's he claiming to be? And he began to say to them, This day in this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words and which proceeded out of his mouth and said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say to me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard you do in Capernaum, do also in this country. But Jesus said, Yea, verily I say to you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. He knew what they were going to do to him next. If you keep on reading the chapter, they were going to kill him. Because he blasphemed in their, in their eyes. But he said, you know what? I was raised in Nazareth. I'm a prophet. You'd be implying that. But no prophet. And he's probably referring to many that were in the past. In his parables, he said, God sent to them prophets, right? Servants and so forth. And they rejected them all. He says, no prophet is, is accepted in his own country, in his own neighborhood. We know who you are. You weren't that big when you were growing up. Even his brothers, it says, didn't believe him, if you remember in John. Even his own brothers did not believe him. But he said, but I tell you the truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all of the land. But unto none of them was Elijah, for Elias said, but unto the the widow, uh, unto Sarepta, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elise, 
seers of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. What was Jesus trying to say? I'm, I'm here, I come to my own, and my own received me not. But those that were not Jewish, those that were considered um, enemies of Israel, dogs, as Jesus said to them, I believe this Seraphonician woman, it's not meat to give, take children's meat and give it to dogs, but he says, of those that were not Jewish, and on top of that, a woman which was in the, in the views of many Jews, the lower class. He said, God sent Elijah to that woman, this Phoenician, and God sent um, Elisha, the, 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 the successor to Elijah, to Naaman the Syrian. Why? Because they were ready to receive him. God will not force anything upon anyone. The sun we heard this morning, the seed is sown, but depending upon which ground it falls, it brings forth fruit. It reminded me of the chapter in 1 Corinthians. If I can just read you this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Sorry. Um, yeah. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He, he talks, before that, he talks about. Let's back up. Verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, because they were so smart, they knew better, they knew not God. The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, I won't believe unless you show me a sign, and God gave them many signs. And the Greeks, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. They want you to mental, uh, have mental um, arguments, intellectual arguments to prove your point. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Right? And then he says, but unto them which are called, unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Unto the ones that are called, who are they called? Aren't they all called? God calls everyone. The, the, the seed is cast, broadcast. God calls everyone. God called the people to the wedding feast. Many came, many did not come. They had excuses, they had reasons not to. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, he says to the church at Corinth, 
Brethren, you can see your calling. Look at you. Look among you. Look. How that not many are wise after the flesh. You don't have to be intellectual to accept the gospel. You don't have to figure everything out before you believe it. And he said, not many are noble. Not many are mighty. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised have God chosen, yea, and the things which are not. What does that mean? Things that do not even exist, or in the eyes of people, you don't exist. I don't accept your, your presence. He said, the things that are not, had God chosen to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. And I found it very interesting how you got this widow who was desperate, who was about to die, who had nothing on this earth left, save a child. And this mighty man, this captain of the Syrian host, it doesn't mean they cannot be saved. He's but not many. Not many that are mighty, not many that are noble, because they trust in their might, they trust in their nobility, they trust in their riches, they trust in thinking that that's what's going to save them. And I can just, the more I guess get older, I, when I when I read stories like this, I'm, I'm picturing this widow of Sarepta, and she's got this. In my view, I don't think it was necessarily an old woman because she's a widow. Maybe her husband got killed in a battle or de a disease, right? She could have been a very young woman, but no food. And I think of my family, my, my daughter and her, younger, uh, her older boy. And then imagine them about to give their last, shriveled up and skinny and, and, and about to die. That's all they have. We place ourselves back in that time. Role play, I think these, these accounts will give us far more greater impact than just glossing over and this is just a Sunday school story. And so she gives to the prophet, what has she got to lose? Another mouthful of meal? She gives to the prophet because when someone is in a real dire situation, when someone, and I can attest to that now with, with our boy Ryan, for, for years been looking for some kind of a solution to his problem, to his illness. And when, when, when what seems to be traditional medicine doesn't seem to work, you go for whatever's out there, I'll take my chance. Let me try the homeopath route or the functional medicine route. This woman says, what have I got to lose? Let me try this. Maybe there's something in it for me. And she placed her faith in that man. She didn't gulp it down with her son. She's going to die anyway. And this man, Elijah, the promise came true. She was never hungry again. Because God replaced her. But she had offered her.
her life. That was a very tender moment for Elijah. Very tender moment. It's not what happened on Carmel where he called the fire down from heaven and prayed to God and God consumed. And that's what the disciples were looking for, right? John and James. When it seemed like the Samaritans had rejected Christ on his way to Jerusalem. And then, then they were vehement and then they were you know, very zealous for the Lord. And they said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? And Jesus said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. The Lord's coming to save us, not destroy them. That's human understanding. That's not waiting upon God, but telling God what to do. Or suggesting to God, maybe you didn't think about this, God. You should have. Maybe we should do that, right? We see the account as it goes through uh, chapter 18. We talked about how there was a big contest of Carmel, and eventually God demonstrated that He was the real God, the true God, as was challenged by Elijah. And the prophets were slain. 850 of them were slain. The prophets of Baal and Asherah, or the groves. And now, when Jezebel heard this, said, there's no rage like a woman scorned. And it's exactly, probably came from the picture of Jezebel's extended, stretched out face in anger and fury that she's going to do to Elijah what he had done to her prophets. When Elijah heard that, he takes off from Carmel and he runs all the way down to horror. And it's amazing to me, I'm trying to understand whether God initiated this or not. It's very difficult to understand. But whatever happened, God used this event in Elijah's life. Because it says here, and when he saw that he arose from for his life, he ran to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there in Bathsheba. But he himself kept going for another day's journey into the wilderness, and he sat down, probably exhausted, under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he could die. It was too much. It was too much for Elijah. He wished that he would die. People come to that point in life where they are desperate. There's despair. Their, their life seems hopeless. And I have nothing else I can do. It's easier for them just to close their eyes. And he said, Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. Was he saying that his fathers that failed, that couldn't completely eradicate idolatry, that couldn't completely reform the nation of Judah, or Israel in this case, and as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, that an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked up, and behold, there was a cake on baking coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. He must have been very tired and very weak. Sometime later, the angel again wakes him up out of his sleep. 
which is arising in because the journey is too great for thee. Now this is the verse that catches my attention. Like, God knew where he was going. Through the angel he tells you, you better eat some more because the, where you're going, it's a long way. You're going to need to sustain yourself. It's 40 days and 40 nights. Right? I thought, well, he's God. Directing him there? Is God leading him there? Or because Elijah has already made up his mind, God is going to use this opportunity as a, as a educational moment, as a teaching lesson, as some way to, to bring to Elijah's understanding of what it's all about. So, as we see it, he does travel 40 days and 40 nights, and he goes into the Mount Horeb. Now, if you know the Sinai Peninsula, that triangle, Suez Canal, right? Arabian Gulf. Mount Horeb, apparently, is right at the bottom, near the temple. And it's the first place that Israel stopped at, really, when they escaped Egypt. They came out and went down this peninsula, they went back up. But it was also the same place where they took off their jewelry and gold and gave it to Moses to make a tabernacle for them. It's also the same place where Moses struck the rock and gave water to drink to the nation of Israel. It's also the same place where Moses was minding his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro's sheep. And he went after a stray lamb or a sheep and saw his horns caught in the thickets and then saw the flaming bush and was not concerned. It was a great monumental place for Moses and now for Elijah. It's called the mountain of God. Some believe it's the same place as Sinai. Some believe there's a twin peak. I don't know. But there was this scenario where Elijah now is in Horeb and he's sleeping or resting. And then God calls to him. Like Adam, when he was running from God, God calls to him. Adam, where are, where are you? Here comes God and he says what are you doing here Elijah what are you doing here like God knew who's coming here he wanted to when God asks us questions it's not to find out information from us it's for us to question ourselves right when he searches our hearts he doesn't search our heart like Know, uh, the Holy Spirit does to find out about more about us. He made us. But He searches our hearts in a way that we will question ourselves. That's where conviction comes from. That's where um, we can answer the question ourselves if we're honest with ourselves, right? You know, when, when David sinned, that great sin of adultery, murder, and fabrication, 
And he repented in Psalm 51. He then acknowledged, he said, Well, against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this iniquity. After he was found out, after Nathan pointed his bony finger at him and said, You are the one. And then David in the psalm had to completely let it all out. And he says, Lord, you desire truth after the inward parts. Don't make it look like it's true to somebody else when it's not. You really desire truth after the inward parts because when you're truthful on the inside, you'll be truthful on the outside. And so God asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I have been jealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, was Elijah on the run from Jezebel? Was Elijah also maybe on the run from God? Because he said, I can't do what you want me to do. I've tried. I'm not better than my fathers. I couldn't do it. I may as well die. And then God didn't answer the question. Like Jesus, many times he did not answer the question, but he gave them a parable or he gave them an example or a word picture. Like when they came to him for the adulterous woman in, in John chapter 8. He said, the Lord, Moses said, you need to stone her. What do you say, Master? He just kept her running in the realm. Just running. They were wondering what's going on. Then Jesus stood up and says, You, anyone among you who are without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. Or he answered their question without answering their question. He made them think about what they were doing. Again. He made a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still as the saying goes. He, he wants the answer to come from within. He wants you to answer the question. He doesn't want God to answer the question for you. He knows it. Right? That's why it's very humbling. God knows my heart. God knows who I am. I don't have to convince God. So he gives, he gives Elijah the prophet this, this real, real word picture. He says, Go stand upon the mount of the Lord. That's the mount of the Lord, horrible. Verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the rocks, just blew these rocks all over, broke them in pieces on the bottom. The Lord was not in the wind. What does that mean? And after the wind, there was an earthquake. God shook the earth. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. He didn't. I don't know what that really, really means. That he was not in the earthquake. He caused the earthquake. But his. Maybe it was meaning that the message is not in this big, powerful, uh, uh, 
dramatic way that we need to listen to God. I think that's what the answer is, is, is coming to at the end, right? Not in the wind, not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, a still small voice. A still small voice. And it was so. When Elijah heard that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And before, behold, there came a voice to him again. Now, Elijah, have you learned your lesson? Let me, let me ask that question one more time now. Did you get it? And he said, I have been very jealous. He, he, he rehearses the same scripted, if you will, um, language. I have been very jealous or zealous for the word, Lord of God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with a sword, and even I, and only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Was that true? Was that true, that he was the only one left? Obadiah just finished telling him a chapter before that White Peter, another hundred prophets, in two caves. And he said, I'm the only one. Does that teach us maybe a lesson as well? That we maybe make things bigger than what they really are? What, what is fear? What many, time, many times cripples us? Fear. We, we've heard of the acronym before called F-E-A-R for you. False evidence appearing real. Sounds okay. But in many ways, our fears are bigger than reality. And the opposite of fear, I've heard in the past, still trying to analyze it, opposite of fear is faith. We don't have to fear if we believe that God is in us and God is with us. What have I got to fear? Jesus says, don't fear man that can just destroy the body. But fear God, it can not, even, not only destroy the body, but afterwards throw it into everlasting Gehenna, hellfire. I think it's a lesson to Elijah that he should not be distracted from the noise of this world, from what appears to be harmful or injurious. He was saying, listen, Elijah, you, you, you're telling me twice now that all these things are happening to you. They're after your life. They're slaying the prophets. And then this, this is a great struggle and this great battle that you're faced with. But I want to tell you something.
killed 7,000 that have not bowed their knee unto Baal. Did you know that? But many of us, like Elijah, when the battle, when the going gets tough, we crawl into a cave where there is no light, when there is no direction. We may feel sorry for ourselves, but you'll never get an answer by feeling sorry for yourself. You'll never solve the problem by feeling sorry for yourself. When we start feeling sorry for ourselves, basically we've abandoned the idea that God is our present helper in every need. Even when we feel that we have been unjustly dealt with, that we've been offended, we feel the best way to deal with an offense is to isolate ourselves, to not talk to anyone, because they don't understand me. We'll never resolve issues by not communicating and being accountable to one another. I remember when I got first engaged, and I don't know where it came out of, but one brother came up to me and says, I wanted I have one piece of advice for you, brother. He says, communicate, communicate, communicate. Whoa, where'd that come from? I don't even know Millie that well. But I guess he's spoken from experience. If you don't communicate, guess what happens? You build up all kinds of thoughts about each other. You start thinking evil things of each other. You start thinking this is what really happened, but in fact, it's not that at all. And we become offended. And we get into that. Remember we talked about a trap a few weeks ago? On the trap of offense. It's the bait of Satan. That he wants us to take this bait. And that trap is meant to kill. Or ensnare animals. And when we take that bait. And we isolate ourselves. Thinking that we can deal with our problem better that way. We, we go into a cave as Elijah went into a cave thinking that the solution to this is to say goodbye cruel world. You say, I can't handle it anymore. I can't deal with this. But what about God? You're saying something is too big for God. God is saying, the battle is mine. It's not your battle. You have help. You have 7,000 people that are bowing their knees, praying for you. Not to Satan. Not to Baal. They haven't bowed their knees to Baal. They're bowing their knees to God. We have friends. We have family. We have fellow believers that pray for us. We shouldn't hide ourselves in a cave. And when we do that, when, what happened? Let me just take five minutes to quickly 
encapsulate what happened at the end. Did God want Elijah to be this way? Did he want Elijah to run in the cave and hide? No, of course he didn't want him to do that. But because he did, now that he has, God is so gracious. God doesn't punish him, God doesn't whip him, but God gives him And now, out of every temptation, he will provide a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 13. So you know what? Elijah, if you think this is too much for you, and if you don't believe that you need to, you can do this anymore, I'm going to find a replacement for you. I'm going to give you a replacement. Before you do that, though, go and make Hazael king of Aram, or Syria. Go make um, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And he, they're going to finish the work off for me. They're going to finish the work off. God was so um, pleased with Elijah for what he's done. But Elijah has shown that he's also a man. And that he has his own foibles and shortcomings. And God is gracious. God lets him do. And that's what your desire is. You, you can't do this anymore. I'm gonna I'm gonna relieve you. Not only that, he took him away in fiery chariots. But before he did that, he said, Go and make your country counterpart if you were Elisha your prophet to replace him. Set up these two kings and I'll do the work. I, the battle is mine. Remember that. I will empower these people to do the work. That's what they did. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, when he asked Peter that crucial question, who do men say that I am? And Peter responded, says, you are the Son. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Simon, by Jonah, that's what he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get this from your own understanding. You didn't come to this because you figured it out in terms of, you know, this makes sense. You saw me. You saw my power. You heard my words. You saw that I fulfilled the scriptures. And God through that has revealed to you that I am the Messiah. And he said, and upon this rock, I believe, upon this confession, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not that the gates are attacking him, but we are converging on the gates of hell as believers, as preachers, as witnesses. We are storming the gates of hell to release those that are bound for hell through the gospel word, through the message. And Jesus said, he didn't say, Peter, you will build my church because you're the rock. No, your confession is the rock and I will build my church. Jesus. 
Guess what? If we become Elijah's and we go and hide in a cave and we don't use the talents that God has given to us and the gifts, you think that's going to stop the kingdom of God attacking the gates of hell? No. Not going to stop. Because if I don't do it, somebody else will. If Elijah didn't want to do it, if he felt hopeless and helpless, then God said, I'll get somebody else. I'll get Elijah. I'm very pleased with your work, but I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to give it to Elisha. And Elisha went on, and we can read the rest of his accounts. There's so much in the Word of God that we can apply if we would only go back into our lives, into our own lives, and see what are the parallels. Are we falling into the same temptations as the prophets of old? as the disciples of old and the apostles of old who had their own foibles and weaknesses and shortcomings. We see, see them all the time. John, Mark and Peter and James and so on. We see what God can make out of them because it's His battle if we only submit to His Spirit which is able to change us from the inside. To Him be the glory of the Lord. Amen. This brother Eric was praying. A verse came to me from the book of James. It says. Was it Elijah's fire? 
Was it his power? No, it was his prayer. And God heard, and God consumed the sacrifice. It's God's power. And that's all he wants from us. And Jesus said, He that is faithful in little is faithful in much. To him be the glory of the Lord. Amen. This concludes our service.